Hi, it's Dan here. Uh, quick editor's note for uh, this episode of the podcast. Um, we recorded this at the end of 2019. So if you're wondering uh, why there's no conversation about the current state of the world, that would be why. Um, still, I think it's a, a very interesting episode and I hope you enjoy. bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Kwesi Kanadu, the Colgate University John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Endowed Chair of Africana and Latin American Studies. Professor Kanadu's teaching and research focuses on African history, West Africa, African diaspora, the Gold Coast, slavery, medicine and healing, spirituality, and social and cultural transformations. The author of 10 books, Professor Conadu's latest work is titled Our Own Way, In This Part of the World, Biography of an African Community, Culture, and Nation, which was published by Duke University Press. Professor Conadu earned his master's degree from Cornell University and his PhD from Howard University. He's done extensive archival research in West Africa, Europe, Brazil, the Caribbean, and North America. Professor Conadu, welcome to 13. Thank you for having me. Jump right into question one. Your newest work on our own way in this part of the world tells the history of a man in Ghana named Kofi Donko. Who was he and why is his story important? That's a great question. I stumbled upon Kofi Donko by accident. I was in Ghana in 2001, beginning my doctoral research on medicine, indigenous medicine. And as I walked around town and spoke to townspeople and other healers, Kofi Donko kept on popping up again and again. In my interviews, there he was again. He was omnipresent. And the more I spoke to individuals who knew him, um, both in life or from hearsay, uh, the more he was this haunting figure that I just wanted to know more about. By the end of my doctoral research, I was trying to put him away and put him to the side, but he, he kept on resurfacing, and so I decided to plunge further into who was this individual and why were people still coming to his homestead a decade after he had passed away. And so I began doing the research in 2000. Uh, one, 2002, and from there on, I would travel to Ghana almost every year, sometimes twice a year, and my approach was to vacuum up as much as I could about his life, his community, his family, but also the colony turned nation which he was a part of, and in doing so, that took me through this decade-long journey into a, a range of archives across several continents, everywhere from the Red Cross Salvation Army archives to the... Um, more traditional national archives in the UK, in the United States, including collections uh, at different universities, but also in Ghana itself where there are regional plus national archives. Kofi Donko, that I came to find, was not found in those archives. He was found in the memories of the people whose lives he had touched. Mm. He was found in the healing intellectual legacy of the scholars and trainees who he had um, also shared his knowledge and his healing acumen. 
it was found in his great-grandchildren and all the community peoples that knew something about him. And therefore, those oral records, those memories, um, those uh, other alternative archives was where I found him. And what I found was remarkable, that he was one of those multi-layered figures, meaning there's always a danger of using one person's life story to um, talk about or think about a broader you know, spectrum of people. But what I found remarkable about Kofi Duncan, what I think is certainly quintessential about him, is that he was at once an ordinary person who was embedded in these rural networks of um, African peoples, who, by the way, constitutes about 60% of the African population, still oh, live wow. in rural areas. And so um, he provides an important window into these networks uh, of rural dwellers, into their life ways, their rural economies. Uh, he played the lotto, for example, which was very popular in Ghana. So he was really just an ordinary person, but yeah. then he was also extraordinary. Um, his healing knowledge was such that uh, one anthropologist, Dennis Warren, which we talk about later, he um, found Okovidonko as a Peace Corps worker and did a dissertation on healing and medicine in the Bolon Tachiman area where Okovidonko lived. And what Warren and I both discovered is that he, Kofi Donko, had a, a knowledge and a grasp of healing and medicine that was far greater than anyone in the entire district. Uh, he had over 2,000 disease um, concepts and names that was found among no other healer in, in the region. And of course, Warren's academic career, one can argue, was based largely on the mental map of Kofi Donko. Uh, he also um, touched the lives of a number of scholars who came to visit him as a result of that research that Warren did in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. And also, Kobe Donko, I think, was also global in the sense that um, you found that there were letters where, for example, um, there's a man from Germany, uh, a European man from Germany, who would request Kofi Donko's healing assistance because there were diasporic Ghanaian communities in, in Germany, and I'm sure Kofi Donko's name had spread that widely. Kofi Donko also trained um, diasporic Africans, African peoples who were born in the Americas, uh, peoples of African descent, trained them to be healers as well. And he was one of the first and probably only one to do so from that region. Mm. And so in many ways, his life really connects to um, not only Africa, but also world history. That is the figure of the healer being this sort of multiverse, that he was at once a healer, a farmer, a blacksmith, a drummer, a family head, and he was also a counselor. Wow. Um, and so this kind of person, for me, ricochets widely because not only does he occupy multiple roles, he's able to provide a wide-angle perspective more than a single individual can. So in the late 1960s and early 70s, you mentioned there was a Stanford-trained biologist named Dennis Warren who learned a lot from Kofi um, Dunko. Tell me a little bit about that interaction. What did he learn? Um, how did that interaction I guess, change or impact the legacy of, of Kofi? Yes. So Dennis Warren uh, was a graduate student. In fact, at that point, he has enrolled at Indiana University as a doctoral student in anthropology. And Dennis Warren had used his previous experience in the Tetchiman region where Kofi Donko lived because he, Dennis Warren, was a science teacher at the Tetchiman Secondary School during his Peace Corps years, which preceded his doctoral years. So what essentially what Dennis Warren did was sort of parlay his previous experience there to say, essentially, let me focus on this area to study medicine and healing. And in doing so, Warren had already established a certain relationship, 
having lived in Techimon for about two and a half years or so. And in his forays throughout the town, Warren, you know, began to um, learn that Kofi Donko had a acumen or had a particular um, gift for uh, indigenous therapeutic and medicine that was far greater than any other heal that he had encountered. And so at first, Warren tried to approach um, Donko and Donko had rebuffed him. Uh, I think Donko infamously said that um, he doesn't want to be cheated by another white man. <laughs> and, and so it took Warren's research assistant, uh, who would play actually a more prominent role uh, than, than Warren himself, a name Owusu Brempong. Owusu Brempong was a student of Warren in the secondary school. Mm. And so Owusu Brempong became essentially research assistant, translator, and more for Warren's research, both for his dissertation and his later career. And so it was, in fact, Awusu Brempong's father, um, D.K. Awusu, who were related to Kofi Donko, had persuaded uh, Kofi Donko to give um, Michael Warren a chance. And so one day, Awusu Brempong and Dennis Warren, they approach Kofi Donko compound, and they have a conversation, and so, you know, Oh, Kofi Donko leans over to Wusu Brimpong and sort of says to him, are you sure this white man won't cheat me? And Wusu Brimpong answers that he's a good white man. He was my teacher at the secondary school. I've known him a long time. And based on that, they do a sacrifice, they have drinks, and, and they sort of, you know, consecrate the meeting. And at that point on, the recordings begin. Now, Dennis Warren, one has to understand that as an anthropologist, white and American anthropologist in the 1960s and 70s, there was an unstated but well-known rule in anthropology that white anthropologists, whether from the United States or from the UK, should not what they call go native, meaning they should not get entangled into the so-called native, that is the uh, you know, indigenous peoples that are there. They're supposed to be objective, they're supposed to do their research and come in, collect data and leave. Do you mean like personal? Like connection, like not even personal connection. In other words, the 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 view was that um, they should not get get invested okay. into in, into into the people, including relationships. In other words, they should have sort of a sterile relationship with the objects of their research, collect their data, and leave. Okay. Right. However, Michael Warren, while in Tetsuman doing the Peace Corps years, he meets um, Mary, woman that becomes Mary Warren. Mary Warren, she was born in Cape Coast, but originally her family is from Nigeria, and she's culturally Yoruba. And they begin um, dating, and eventually they marry. And so Warren, quote-unquote, does go native. <laughs> and uh, in many ways, Warren is, is seen locally, therefore, as a different kind of, quote-unquote, white man, in a sense that he, you know, seems to enjoy, um, you know, forays into indigenous culture. He's learning the language, though he never actually... Um, is fluent in language, which is the country language. He it takes an investment in terms of the healers and, and, and their spiritual and cultural work. So his behavior is, is, is an anomaly among the cast of other uh, European white persons in the region. And that sets him up as, as sort of an ally of the healers. And so throughout his research, Kofi Dunko, as Warren says, is his primary informant. But what I argue in the book is that um, Dunko was more than just a primary informant. Dunko, in fact, essentially is 85% or more of Warren's dissertation. Wow. In fact, Warren credits what he um, discovered 
as the what he called the Bono Techiman conceptual scheme for medicine and healing. And he says, according to priest healer Kofi Domko, where there are over 2,000 lexeme, these concepts about healing and medicine, which all come from Kofi Domko. Hmm. Warren organizes those lexemes into sort of a 12-layer scheme, right? And says, this, this is the traditional conceptual framework from which healers operate. And Warren is credited for this. In fact, Warren uh, receives not only notoriety, but tenure, promotion, and becomes a World Bank consultant from this knowledge. Kofi Dunk, on the other hand, for what I'm told, anecdotally, of course, receives a few shingles for the roofing of his house, but never receives anything materially from, from those interviews. In fact, when I try to track down the um, audio recordings of Kofi Donko and, and Warren and Bren Pong at Indiana University, where they were supposed to be deposited along with the notes, um, no such recordings were there. As I came to find out or discovered, the tapes were erased. What? Yes. <gasps> and so it becomes very coincidental, you know, I, I, I kind of sarcastically note in the book how the primary and foreign his recordings uh, are erased in order to re-record other materials on those tapes because one has to understand also the political economy in the 1970s that these audio these tapes were very expensive and they were few to find in the local you know environment of, of Ghana and so Warren tells us that he erased the tapes in order to re-record more materials but that seems very odd for his primary and foreign to record over those tapes and not others I also had a chance to meet and speak with Awusu Brimpong, uh, who's very much alive. In fact, I was in Ghana this past summer with my family, and uh, I met him again, and you know, we had a chat with him and his wife. And um, Awusu Brimpong um, told me, and it's verified, because I went through Warren's papers at Iowa State University, where he worked, and also at Iowa University, and none of the notebooks were there. All the notebooks and translations, which Awusu Brimpong did, the transcriptions he did, because again, Warren did not learn to speak fluently in language. Mm -hmm. So he relied heavily on Wusu Brimpong. Brimpong also drew many of the maps. Um, so much of the data, the raw data material, Brimpong had to hand over to Warren. Secondly, many of those notebooks um, are either um, not found or, or they were stashed somewhere else because they were not in the places they were said to be, in Indiana University or University of Iowa, Iowa State. So I really did some really deep digging to kind of follow these trails, and it just seemed very odd. And so um, Brimpong has always maintained that he did about 85% of the work. And based upon what I've discovered in my own research, that seems to be corroborated. And so what you have here is not, not simply a sort of a intellectual theft. What you have here is also a bigger story, which is the coming of age of African studies in the 1970s, wow. where um, European and white Americans, anthropologists in particular, but not solely, historians as well, where they would pounce upon you know, African sites of knowledge and viewing those sites as only the plantations for their data. And they view their informants and interpreters as mediums or, or, or go-betweens to collect that data. But then, of course, that data will later be parlayed into books, into dissertations, into articles that would lead to academic notoriety and distinction in the wards. And so you, what you find is not only a knowledge uh, inequity, but also a power inequity. Because 1970s, you know, Africa, um, the dreams of independence had not been realized. And so, uh, of course, you also have the Cold War, you know, between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., former U.S.S.R., Russia, Soviet Union. And so Africa is pitted between the, these, you know, global juggernauts for knowledge, for power, and also for you know, entryway in, into these people. And therefore, these African people like Kofi Donko 
they stand at the precipice between these, these, these fights, these global fights. And so if you read Warren as simply exploiting it, I think readers would actually miss the point of the story. There's a bigger story here about the ways in which uh, knowledge is produced, knowledge is commodified, and who ultimately benefits from that knowledge production. Wow. What, so uh, that makes me wonder now, too, that uh, what is the legacy of Kofi Donko? Like, are there things in modern medicine or modern healing that kind of stem from his what, what he shared? Well, indeed. In fact, uh, we had looked no further than the continuous debate in the United States, for instance, about affordable health care. Mm -hmm. And the, these, um, you know, Democratic candidates for the presidency um, tussling about Healthcare for all, Medicare for all, and and really, I think the premise of, of, of those debates they miss a very crucial point that Kofi Donko I think realized long ago, which is that um, the whole human being has to be treated. That human beings are not simply disease organisms. That they're not simply there. They're not simply the, the result of biological breakdowns. That that human beings are also emotional, cognitive, and also spiritual beings. That are sort of bundled into one. And as healers. Healers are able to sort of tap into these layers, right? To be able to see these layers and not compartmentalize them. So for example, if you think about how we do, you know, healthcare in this country, we'll go see a general physician, then we go see a specialist, and then we may, you know, then we may get some medication, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. But we, what we understand, for example, that take stress. You know, stress is, 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 a, is, is an expression of disease somewhere, but it, it is not something you can isolate in a laboratory. There's no culture you can, you know, you can call, you can call from from stress. But stress is real. Ask any one of us on a college campus yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of how real stress is. Um, and so healers are able to identify these sort of immaterial factors that impinge upon our whole health. And so healers are able to see the whole human being, not just the part. And I think that's a crucial, I think, contribution to how we think about health and healing in any human society. And I think the Chinese, for example, they they have this. Um, the Indian medicine, for example, they, they have close to it because what they do is they combine the best of both allopathic biomedicine, but also indigenous medicine that use um, herbs, that use meditation, that use different kinds of healing modalities to, again, hit those layers of our being that, you know, medication just can't touch. And of course, finally, I think we can see the um, consequence of over-medication in the opioid epidemic or in athletes being given, you know, all these medications to, you know, try to painkillers in particular, when really their pain is more than just physical. You know, and so healers, I think, like Kofi Donko, they contribute this, I think, holistic view on understanding that should be at the foundation of any discussion or debate about health care. And you, you're uniquely qualified to talk about this as uh, the bio on the Colgate website states that you're a father and a husband first and foremost, but you're also a healer. And you studied with your grandfather in Jamaica uh, and then in Tekiman, uh in central Ghana. Um, tell us about becoming a healer. Uh, and the time you spent studying with your grandfather. My grandfather was a covert healer. He would never made it explicit. In fact, I, I didn't find out until much later that what he really was. I just took what he did as face value. Uh, granted, I was a child in Jamaica. And so um, I remember very fondly my grandfather um, doing certain rituals. He had a friend named Nunu. And Nunu and he were into this um, cultural, spiritual phenomenon in Jamaica called um, Pokominia, or in Kikongo, the language spoken in West Central Africa, um, called Kumina. And Kumina is, is this um, cultural, spiritual practice that was um, brought over by captive Africans from West Central Africa in the 19th century. 
that came to populate Jamaica, the, the large wave in the latter part of the 19th century that came to populate Jamaica. And they brought with them, not you know, surprisingly, many of their linguistic and cultural sure. inheritance. And so Kamina comes out of that. And Kamina um, was very potent and powerful. In fact, in, in popular um, reggae dancehall musics, there was a song called the Pokemon Jam. Uh -huh. And the Pokemon Jam uses it, the lyrics, but also that there's a dance that accompanied it, uses some of, of the um, dance f movements from the ritual Kamina into the, oh, wow. in, into the reggae dancehall scene. And, and the rhythms of it, I mean, it, it's very similar from the ritual. So in many ways, that, that sort of spiritual cultural ritual you know, form spilled over into the popular culture in Jamaica um, to show you how widespread you know, these forms were at the time my grandfather lived. And so I, I learned a lot from my grandfather, um, ritually speaking, but also you know, just spending time with him. In fact, um, I think much of my temperament comes from my grandfather. Um, and so uh, he provided sort of the first foundation um, and in Jamaica, healers like him were referred to as bush doctors for the fact that they deal with a lot of herbal medicines. They would go to the bush or the forest region to procure their medicines. Uh -huh. um, but also not my grandfather alone. My, my great-grandmother and her mother um, were also healers themselves. And they would use not only indigenous medicines found in Jamaica, but also they would use their dreams, which I also inherited, where much of what uh, I would I would see in a dream, you know, I would go look for it, or I may get a you know a certain kind of intuition, you know, through the dream. Or, for example, I would meet an ancestor in a dream that would show me, you know, try this or do mm. this. And so, um, these are some of the, I think, parts that I took from my my grandfather that I was able to further when I was in Ghana. But I made sure that when I was in Ghana in Techiman, that I would only you know train to become a healer after my academic work was finished. I didn't want to complete the two, and I made sure that the elders there who I spoke to, uh, that that was very clear. I didn't want to confuse the two or blur the lines. Sure. Because there is that sense that um, those who look to learn about medicine, it, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege and also a private matter, and that healers are very guarded. And understandably so, because they've been vilified both in the Ghanaian media, uh, in, the, in the school curricula, they've been marked as quote-unquote, fetish priest, which is, of course, from the Portuguese word festeiro, meaning the idea of someone who does some nefarious business with regard to uh, inanimate objects that have been given certain, you know, spiritual sure. you know, forces. And so um, the Portuguese term, you know, and, and, the, and the sort of modern English version, fetish, has nothing to do with what healers do. Um, there, I mean, much of, what, much of that is the conjure of Hollywood, you know, dolls and, 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 and voodoo dolls and so on and, and the like. Really what these healers do, which is what I learned from my grandfather and in my training, is that it's, sort of, it's, a, it's a range of pharmacopoeia. And a big part of learning to be a healer is learning how to identify these plants, what parts to use, and what combinations. Most like a chef. Sure. And, and so that's part of the, a big part of the curriculum, is really how to deal with them. Also, a misunderstood part of the curriculum is also how to deal with the sort of you know, life challenges, um, to deal with the stress, to deal with marital challenges to do naming and wedding ceremonies. This is part of the full range of the healer's portfolio that often I think we miss when we reduce them to these so-called fetish priests and, the, and, and, and these vilified individuals that are being treated by hyper-Christian elements in Ghana, but also I think the world at large. Hmm. Your 2018 book, Transatlantic Africa, closely examines the global slave trade and its consequences through African and diasporic primary sources. 
And there's a figure in the book that cites the updated transatlantic slave trade database, showing there's a record of about 36,000 voyages and 12,521,337 Africans taken to the Americas. It also states that that number is believed to be about four-fifths of the actual figure. Why do you think historians um, think the number is larger? And I guess, what do we know about those who have gone uncounted? Those are great questions. My view is that the database is a trap in a sense that it gives you numbers that sort of either poke at or suggest finality. That is that we have culled, we the researchers of that database, have culled all the known records and this is what we are finding. So when, when one claims four-fifth, I think the listeners and, and, and readers and, and viewers of that database have to be very cautious because four-fifths suggest that the known quantity is known. Mm. And we don't I know see. the total. Yeah. So you, we can't claim four-fifths of something we don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? I get it. And so well, it's a trap because it, it, it sort of lulls us into believing that this is the best we have done. This is, this is remarkable work. Now, get me wrong. I have used the database myself, and it is remarkable, but it's remarkable within certain limitations. And so it is is a work of, you know, what researchers have done over decades of digging these national and and regional archives. And so I don't want to understate the importance, but I do want to overstate the very guided caution in using that because it it, it makes a a promise that 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 is unreachable. We don't know and have no way of ever knowing that final number. But I would also argue that... I don't think it's really that important to know the final number mm-hmm. because, you know, if, if you know, as I challenge my students with their argument, I say, so what? <laughs> you know, in other words, to push them further, to challenge them to think, you know, sharper about their ideas. So what if we know the final numbers? What, do, what does that give us? Right. I mean, what's the implication of that? And so um, I don't see any, any real world and, and, and concrete benefit from knowing the final number. I think from what we do know, there are some very important implications. For example, in Transatlantic Africa that you reference, um, you know, I was the first to use these primary sources to rewrite the history of transatlantic slaving from, from African experiences. No one had done that before, to rewrite the entire history of that you know, phenomenon from, from the people who experienced it, which I thought was, was obvious. Mm-hmm. You should start there. And I think precisely because scholars have fallen in love with the numbers. The numbers, much like our previous conversation about Dennis Waring, the numbers allow us, like anthropologists like to believe falsely, that we can be objective, that we are not involved, that we are not, you know, part of it. As soon as we begin to read their stories, as I did, and many stories are tough to read. You, you, you just can't leave them and, and being a human being and not feel something. Yeah. So immediately I'm implicated. <laughs> By my very, you know, venture into these archives, into these narratives, I'm already implicated. So what do I do? Am I their lawyer? No, I'm not the lawyer. I mean, I'm not there to adjudicate the past. But what I am here to do is to make sure I get their stories right. And so my job as, as an historian, as a scholar, is to make sure that I have, you know, full grasp of the context and the content of their lives. And that I, you know, am able to narrate their stories in a way that if they were alive or able to come back to read the book, they would recognize themselves in the story. Hmm. That's my job. I'm not there to judge, you know, you know, reparations or even though I do tackle reparations or judge the right or wrongness or who's the villain or who's the innocent. Because as I argue in the book, you know, there's no hero in the story. 
They can't be. Yeah, yeah. Because there are too many entanglements involved. You know, they're kinfolks. They're, they're individuals who are pawning and, and casting away. There are people who deemed other individuals in the side to be undesirable. Uh, same as we do here in the United States, where what do we do with our homeless? They're undesirable, right? So we pass them in the streets. Mm-hmm. We drop them a few quarters in New York City, you know, or in Syracuse or in another major city close by. But we really don't care about their human, hum, their humanity. And so, like all societies, we, I think what the story provokes us to think about is what do we do? How do we treat our undesirables? How do we treat those on the margin? Because I think that says more about a human society than any other facet. It's not GDP. It's not gross national product. It is not, um, you know, how much wealth or how much tech, you know, you have. It is how we treat our marginalized and most vulnerable. That is a measure of the quality of any human society. So I think that's one of the implications that, you know, the book, you know, sort of tries to, you know, lead us towards. And then, therefore, we can think about the current debates about reparations, for example, uh, as not necessarily monetary, but also, you know, what, what are these, you know, broader human implications? And it's funny you mentioned rep- reparations because my next question does go into that. Uh, you know, there there is a lot of discussion uh, in current media right now about the idea of reparations for slavery. But the concept isn't new. Uh, can you tell us about the first documented request for reparations and the woman we only know as Belinda? Indeed. In fact, I have to admit that she may not be um, the first, um, but she's certainly one of the earliest cases um, I've come to realize there's a, there's a number of 19th century cases, uh, which, you know, her falls in the 18th century, but there's a yeah. number of 19th century cases that are equally important. So she's the first that I found, or the earliest, I would say, the earliest recorded case uh, of someone in the late 18th century Massachusetts who, in fact, sues, you know, her um, former slaveholder for her labor. And she, sa- and she says it in, in the um, court documents for the Massachusetts you know, um, Supreme Court, I think in at least two cases, there's an initial case and there's a follow-up case. I think the first case is in 1788. And there's a follow-up case, you know, maybe a year or two later about getting, and she gets a pension, you know, that... Um, but so she won. In a sense, yes, but, you know, um, that was an individual matter. Mm-hmm. And I think to your question, the, the debates around reparation and the recent, for example, congressional hearing on reparations, they're looking not at an individual, you know, um, reconciliation or reckoning, looking for sort of, you know, mass, you know, you know for, for a people, so to speak. And so um, I think, you know, this, this African woman who's recorded as Belinda, what her case does, it, it just points to that individual reparations of sorts um, were plausible and still are plausible. But when it comes to the group matter, I think that that becomes contentious because, for example, I think it was President Reagan who uh, acknowledged and gave reparations to the Japanese. That's my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, me, let me jump right into that question then, since you're already going there. Um, in 1988, um, President uh, Ronald Reagan signed into um, law the Civil, the Civil Liberties Act. Um, so how does that act play into the current discussions about slavery reparations? It plays into it in the sense that it gives what, what lawyers would call precedent. Um, that is, it, it is, is, a, is a history of a similar, not the same, but similar matter that has been adjudicated, has been given a certain result. Now, granted, I think this was an executive order uh, of sorts, so it didn't go through the court oh, so system per se. So I'm not sure if it was, but it was, it was a law put into, it was a law that was enacted, President Reagan signed it. 
um, what I'm saying, it didn't go through the Supreme Court, I for see. example. So this, this wasn't a, a legal decision, but it was an executive or a congressional decision. Either way, it does give some precedence. And so reparations activists on the African descendant side have argued and used this case to say that, you know, this, you know, is an example of what the U.S. government can do. Can you explain what that did just so people, if they don't know about what it did as far as um, what it offered? Sure. It, to do with Japanese internment. Yes, yes. It offered um, the living, um, you know, um, members and even descendants of those Japanese Americans who were interred in the concentration camp um, during the war years, um, precisely in the West Coast, um, giving them a, 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 a stated amount of monies. Um, granted, the persons could prove that their kinfolk, and in fact, had spent time in those camps, okay. right? So much like the 9-11 Commission, where people had to essentially prove that their kindred or their kinfolks, excuse me, uh, were in fact affected, you know, by the um, either the towers or the planes that crashed into the towers, mm -hmm. um, they had to prove it. And then there was a commission established with sort of a you know trust fund set aside, and, and essentially they would divvy out the monies based upon the claims that were made, right? Mm -hmm. And so likewise, they had to prove. Um, their cases. So there was monies put aside by Congress, right? And there was also a law, as you as you as you mentioned, um, that would essentially instantiate this particular case. And so again, reparations activists have argued that this is indeed a, a precedent, you know, that could be used. But I think one of the main sticking points that people try to, um, you know, question that approach is by saying, well, the people that were enslaved have transitioned, have died, and passed on. How are how is one able to verify or, or make the claim if there was monies put aside? How much money is put aside? So all these questions are raised, and I think those questions, some of them are legitimate, but I think they're also a smokescreen. They're a way to not get at, I think, a root problem. And I think the root problem, and much of the congressional debates did not get at this. The, the debates, they really were back and forth between you know, well-known public figures and well-meaning figures who argued for or against monetary reparations. I think both sides missed, missed a crucial point, and that point is this. They missed that reparations is not about how much and who should get what. Reparations should be a, an analog, a metaphor, for broad social transformation because chattel enslavement was the only business for making um, colonies into a capitalist nation, into a capitalist empire, that's the United States. One thing, one thing only. So whether it is enslaved labor for tobacco, wheat, indigo, and king cotton in the 19th century, um, it, is, it is slavery that transformed these fledgling colonies into a nation, into a global empire. Hmm. And therefore, every institution society has to be you know, sort of reflected in this transformation because every society was touched. So, for example, we talked about medicine. Um, as Greg Grandin, who's a professor of history at NYU, has noted in his recent book, um, there, there's no part of U.S. society that has not been benefited from um, enslavement broadly, meaning in our medical sciences. For example, we go to our physician for a checkup. That, that procedure and that process has been aided by dead and dying African bodies that were autopsied on the slave ships, um, bodies that were dug out of graves and that were you know, given to medical students 
from prominent U.S. universities by which to learn how the body really works and what happens, you know, after rigor mortis sets in, right? And so what we know in terms of the knowledge accrued from the dead and dying bodies has really bolstered what we know in terms of contemporary, you know, allopathic medicine. Our financial systems, everything from capital, where Africans were both the currency and they were also producers of the currency. <laughs> they were the capital and the production of capital. Um, Africans, so everything from speculation to markets to corporations, it was based on these African um, bodies and ideas. Our industries, um, whether it, it's, it's you know, turning convicts into convict laborers in the 19th century and therefore transforming a rural economy into an industrial economy in the South and in the North. And so there's, there's so much. Our education system in terms of myth we tell each other, you know, about American history, um, in terms of what's happening in Texas and in schools saying, well, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. We all know it was about slavery. But it, it is, it is, so it is all these institutions in U.S., you know, life and culture that has been thoroughly massaged by enslavement that have to be reckoned with. And that's why I say it's not about who gets what. It's not about the amount. It's about the reverberating and, 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 and so, you know, metastasized form of slavery which means we got to deal with everything. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, uh, focus a little bit more on your work related to Ghana. And I want to set the stage, I guess, talking a little bit about modern Ghana and I guess how you would describe the country for someone who hasn't had the opportunity to travel there, who doesn't really know anything about the country at all, if you had to give kind of like the postcard overview. Sure, which seems unlikely because Ghana is one of the most popular <laughs> places, particularly for U.S. students, study abroad, Fulbrights. Uh, business interests. Uh, Ghana is one of the most popular places because uh, for the uninitiated or uh, those who may be curious, it, the official language is English, even though the unofficial official language is a country, including um, Eve, Hausa, and a few other indigenous languages. It is also, because it's a former British colony, it therefore has institutions that are that are familiar in a sense of there's a parliamentary form of government. There are um, the institutions in terms of schooling. So, for example, rather than have the elementary, junior high school, high school structure, there there are the um, primary, junior, <laughs> secondary, and of course secondary schools. Yeah. And you take subjects, right? And so, the, so anyone familiar with the English or, or British system of education, uh, of governance, and of political and social organization they'll find similarities there already. And so Ghana, therefore, from those perspectives, are a familiar ways to plug into a place that's not so distinct from what you may find in other English-speaking places. But Ghana, I think, ha has a wealth of ecological and cultural endowments. For example, the uh, world-renowned kente cloth um, you know, that, that is made in Ghana um, that you find, for example, in Macy's and uh, other uh, outlets here. Um, You'll find you find a, a range of 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 cultural uh, facets in terms of dance. Um, there are a variety of cuisines that uh, any visitor would love. Wh whether it's the um, you know kelly which is the fried plantains with ginger mm -hmm. and a bit of cinnamon, or it is the fufu, which is the pounded uh, cassava yam or plantain, which is usually matched with a soup or stew. Uh, and there's sort of vegetarian options. There's fish. I mean, so there's, there's really just so much. And Ghana, of course, in addition to that, uh, is a major um, soccer 
uh, powerhouse. In fact, yes. those who watch soccer like I do, and I'm not sure if you do, um, <laughs> you know, watch the World Cup yes. that comes every four years, Ghana's anticipated to usually be in the mix because uh, they have been, um, like, along with Nigeria and Senegal, they have been you know, major soccer players, both in the Africa Cup, which is the African regional mm -hmm. version, and of course in the World Cup on the global stage, you know, the, the Ghanaian team um, always, and so therefore there's a strong soccer culture locally Nice. With teams like Asante Kotoko, and so visitors will find both a tremendous variety in terms of cuisine. They'll find you know variety in terms of uh, in the capital Accra. There's a night. There's a very robust nightlife, and and and, and um, um, you know, um, uh, not, like a sort of a the after uh, hours you know working. There's a range of certain hotels that have popped up. There's a mall, actually several malls in, in, in the capital that will rival, I guess, almost any mall here in in, in New York. In particular, and so there's a lot that it offer, mm -hmm. you know, for for the for the visitor that they will not find elsewhere. Uh, finally, I'll, I'll say this: that um, Ghana also has its challenges, and so one one of the um, you know major challenges is the way that you know Ghana is trying to manage its its perceived role as a model democracy um, viewed by the Western world, um, coming from being a model colony. In its, in its time as, as a British colony, and of course, the interests of its people. So for example, um, unemployment is, is a serious concern, particularly for young people. Mm. And so while Ghana is, is being touted in the West for being this model democracy, on the ground, there are some very important life issues that regarding unemployment, that regarding a diverse economy that's not based simply on uh, either gold production or or agrarian production, which which is a big part of the economy. So, having a diversified economy that that you know that hits on the different you know and demographic layers of Ghana, which and, and Africa at large, because Africa, for example, is largely and it's going to be a youth continent, meaning thirty and, and below. Um, demographers would estimate um, now and very soon, and so Ghana has to be able to you know match you know their perceived role in the world with delivering. You know, on healthcare, delivering on schooling, delivering on jobs, sound familiar? <laughs> delivering on, on on all these you know important life um, you know opportunities for its population, and I think not believing its hype too much outside of Ghana, yeah. and really focusing on its its people more. So your 2016 book, The Ghana Reader: History, Culture, Politics, covers 500 years of Ghana's history. And it has selections written by everyone from farmers, traders, and the clergy to intellectuals, politicians, musicians, and foreign travelers. Why is it important to have such a wide array of voice, voices to tell this story? And is it something that, you know, should be done in all histories? I agree. I agree in the latter that it should be done for all. Um, so the, the book that you referenced comes out of a series uh, of world readers that Duke University publishes. And I think, if I remember correctly, uh, the Ghana reader is actually the second reader that focuses on an African country. The first was from South Africa. And so uh, I had pushed the project with, with Duke University Press uh, precisely because at that point, the South African reader was in, was in production. So there was none. <laughs> and I thought that the Ghana reader would be the first, but it, it turned out to be the second one. Um, so the Ghana Reader, what, what, it, what it does, uh, it precisely addresses your previous question, which is it's designed precisely for those who are unfamiliar mm. or who may be mildly familiar with the country and to give them really a, a very thoroughgoing introduction, uh, but also for those who are initiated, uh, a reminder and even some surprises 
because we have everything there from the archaeological, you know, finds and records to some of the deep histories from the last 5,500 years, excuse me. But also they, they focus on um, soccer and, and how politics and soccer is, is intertwined uh, in, in that place. Focuses on um, health and, and, and cuisine in terms of public health, but also the um, changes that come about by Ghana's, you know, um, increasing um, contact with and influence uh, exchanges between Ghana and the world. So, for example, Ghana has incorporated the carnival, which is largely a Caribbean, Caribbean yeah. phenomenon. But yes, there's carnival in Ghana. Um, and therefore, um, you know, Ghana is, is in many ways is, is, is worldly while being local. And uh, so the read introduces that as well as a genre of hip hop music and culture uh, called hip life. So the readings there, including you know, um, profiles of certain artists, hip hop artists that are there. There's a, there's a range of artworks and there's poetry, uh, particularly by the Ghanaian um, poet Chrissy Brew. Um, so there's a, there's a range. There's so much there that I think it it will register on the number of levels, both in terms of visual stimuli, uh, auditory senses, as well as just the literature that's been produced by so many ranges of of, of um, People who are visitors, but also you know people who are local to the place. And I should I should be missed by saying there's a number of pieces of women in Ghana, which in terms of historiography has not been a main concern. So we made sure that we want to make sure there's a number of people. And geographically, what we tried to do is make sure that there was representation from all of the locales or regions in Ghana. Ghana is divided into ten regions, administrative mm -hmm. regions. So we want to make sure that there was sufficient representation so that. Even if the reader of the Ghana reader is not able to make it, which they should, that they will have felt like they've been there. So tell us about the uh, Akan diaspora and their contributions to the Americas. Sure. So the Akan diaspora book was, was um, um, a work that focuses on these uh, Akan tree-speaking peoples. Um, now, I want to make this clear because some people have... have, have um, purposely or unpurposely misunderstood how I use the term Akan. Okay. So Akan, the, the root of the word, which is Kain, K-A-N, it means first, foremore, foremost pioneer. And so it is not an ethnic term, though it's been used for centuries to refer to ethnicity, but mm. it's not an ethnic term. It's similar to the notion of First Nations that we apply to indigenous peoples here in the Americas, both in the United States and in Canada, right? So First Nations is not an ethnic term. It's a, it's a term of indigeneity, saying that, hey, you were here first, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so Akain refers to a cluster of societies that speak a mutually intelligible language called Chi or Akain. And they share a calendar called Adajuanai. They share a language, Akain tree. They share a social political organization. Uh, the family is referred to as the Abusia. They share military organization in terms of the structure. They also share um, a number of cultural forms and facets, whether it's dance or ritual or spiritual culture. And so that package is, is shared among these people is what unites them in terms of those layers. Now, do they disagree? Of course they did. And did they fight against each other? Yes, they did. Did they compete in trade with Europeans? Yes, they did. So I don't want to suggest that shared you know, points of contact didn't mean that there wasn't conflict, because they were. As we find, for example, in our own families, we share a bloodline, but doesn't mean we don't, you know, sometimes disagree. <laughs> and so the Akan peoples are, 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 are this culturally uh, linguistic group of people um, that, again, is non-ethnic, right? It's a First Nation kind of term, meaning that 
the people that claim to be a Khan all claim to be indigenous. They all claim to be Autochans, that they were, that, that they were, this is their land. Whereas other groups in Ghana, like the Eve and, and the Ga people, they don't claim to be first peoples because they migrated in the mid 17th century okay. and thereafter. So the Khan diaspora follows these people that share these cultural forms into the Americas from about the 17th century up until about 20th century. And I focus on the Caribbean base, particularly Barbados, Jamaica, Antigua, as well as uh, other parts of the Americas. Um, there's, a, you know, there's not much in Brazil in terms of their presence, even though there are small numbers there. Uh, and I focus also on the United States, particularly the U.S. South, Georgia, Carolinas, Maryland, New York, <laughs> uh, as well as New England. And so what I do is it's trying to track their experiences to look at two things, both cultural uh, continuity, how explain how certain forms, um, for example, the names. Names are one of the prominent factors. So, for example, my name, Kwesi, you find it in the records where if you look at the runaway slave advertisements, all throughout the, the South and the North, you'll find names like Kofi, uh, phonetically written as Kofi. Mm. Uh, you'll find um, um, Kwesi's, you find a queer, written phonetically with a Q-U-A. And so you find a range of these names, queer, Kofi, Kwame, and these are stubbornly Akan names. So by seeing these names, what you do, you're able to um, you know, kind of fill out some of the lived experiences of African, captive African peoples who were of this particular grouping and therefore allows one to trace you know, um, language and culture in those areas. And so what I do is trying to track their experiences over this broad you know, time, but also looking at them geographically and to see continuity, but also transformation. How do some of their ideas and cultural forms transform while in the Americas to buttress or, or support their uh, efforts at survival and thriving in, in a very hostile and new environment? You state that you used new diverse sources in your book, The Akan Diaspora in the Americas. And those sources include archaeological, biomedical, climatological, linguistic, ethnomusical, oral, historical, and documentary sources from Portuguese, German, Danish, French, and English. Where, tell me about some interesting sources that you've used or if one that kind of stands out um, that helped inform your work. From that project or another? From, from that project or if you prefer another, then uh, whichever one's most interesting. Hmm, that's a great question. I haven't thought about that before. Um, I, I try not to get too, too attached to the source, <laughs> at least in terms of favorites. You know, yeah. they're, they're all my favorites. <laughs> I can't think of one in, in particular sources that that was um, perhaps more most most revealing because there's so many. <laughs> is there is there one then that you think um, was so different than what you normally do? Like you uh, thought, well, I should include this voice because it's not something I normally see. Hmm. That's, that's also an intriguing question. Um, yeah, I don't play favorites. So I'm, not, I'm not really sure, <laughs> as I do with my children. <laughs> I say, you're all my favorite. All right. So I don't play But I will say this, that I think taken together as a whole, um, I am methodologically very curious, and therefore I will try to learn as much about other people's area of expertise. Not to replace them, obviously, but, but really to learn from them. So, for example, I'm a big fan of archaeological research, but also biomedical research, because I'm, I'm just curious. And I think that curiosity helps to really fill out the human contours of my subjects, right? The people that I'm honored, whose lives I'm honored to research. And so um, I, I have a great respect for the people that do their job in other areas of inquiry and do it well, mm -hmm. because that admiration allows me to learn from them 
And to the extent that I can, you know, um, borrow or at least use, um, you know, appropriately some of their findings, I think what it does, it, it aids not only the research, but it aids to get back to something I mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is my goal is to try to get the stories right. So whatever stories that I have the honor and privilege to research and write about, I want to make sure I can get it right within the you know, restraints that I, I, I have as, as, as a scholar to do so. And so the sources really helped me because one of the unsaid you know, story or backstories of all these sources and all my work has been how much I have learned, hmm. how much I have gained. Um, so I can have a conversation with a linguist, even though I'm not a linguist, because I have learned so much about the methods, the the particulars right, of that of that particular field. I'm not an archaeologist, but I can talk about stratigraphic levels. You know sure. where something is found as, as determining its provenance, right? I, I can have a conversation with with a with a scientist. My wife is a scientist. I can talk to her about the biology of what's going on with malaria, what's happening sickle cell anemia. I can yeah. I can intelligently have a conversation because. I have been schooled, you know, through the sources into these other areas of inquiry that is not my specialty, but I've grown from it. Hmm. So in 2018, you published A View from the East, which takes a look at the history of a community education and arts organization in Brooklyn that was focused on black nationalism. Can you tell us a little bit about the school and its legacy? The school was Oru Sasashuli, which is Kiswahili spoken in East Africa, particularly Kenya and Tanzania meant Freedom Now School. And so this was, 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 a, was a homage to the 1970s, sort of the 60s and 70s, sort of revolutionary time. Vietnam War, student protests, um, civil rights, black power politics, and activism. Of course, can't forget Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> a quiet time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very tumultuous times, particularly for folks on college campus, but also within communities. And so I wanted to focus on this very crucial community called the East. And its hub, its, 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 its center of, of its pulse was a school. Uh, and the school was revolutionary in that it was a K through 12. Uh, but it also had an had a adult learning component called the Eden School of Knowledge, where anyone from the community in Brooklyn and, and New York City, you know, writ large, could learn, you know, particular skills, whether photography, whether it is martial arts, or whether it's Kiswahili. They could essentially, this was an extension, right? Much in which we have, for example, extensions that come out of universities like Cornell and others, that or, or BOCES that offer these skill developing mechanisms sure. for adults who are working yeah. uh, and want to improve in a certain you know aspect of, of their of their lives. But the K through 12 was really crucial because that was where uh, many of the community peoples had their children school that were dismayed by the atrocities occurring in the public schools. And this was a time when the UFT. Um, this large national organization, United Federation Teachers, that was headed by Al Shanker, infamous Al Shanker, uh, who put the privilege and the prerogative of teachers above the students. Mm. Uh, and this was for us the time of classic New York City politics. <laughs> uh, but it was time of experimentation, where you had these attempts to decentralize the schools, which, which, which failed, not because people necessarily, not because it should have failed, but because people wanted it to fail because the teachers' union uh, made sure it failed, because if it succeeded, it meant the union would have lesser role in controlling curriculum, controlling budgets, and that really was at stake. It was really this, this specter of power. Mm. And so what community people like, like Uhuru Sasa in the East did, they said that we have to take the power back to the community, because the community where the power should be. And that makes sense, right? 
And so um, the school was founded, you know, not as an alternative, but as, as a realization that the public school would not be responsive to the needs of the community. And therefore, the school was designed to meet those needs. Um, so in doing so, they, they had to start from ground zero. They had to learn to train teachers. They had to build their own curricular. They had to have teacher training development institutes to continue uh, improving the quality of the teacher's instruction. Um, but then the East organization was this buffer zone around the school. So for example, the East had a catering company. They had a uh, food co-op long before Ralph Nader and, and this organic wow. trend, yes, yeah. where they would go to the Bronx Terminal Market, procure <laughs> foods, and essentially you know, divvied up among the East members and the community members that were involved, right? Mm -hmm. And they would do that every week. They had a, um, a set of musicians and jazz and poets that would come on the, on the weekends, both as fundraising but also as, as, as a space to have. So, for example, people like Dewey Redmond, jazz musicians like Dewey Redmond, Joshua, um, they would come from their sets in Manhattan, whether it's the Blue Notes or the Vanguard, and come to Brooklyn and play way into the inner early morning. And there's, there's recordings of those sessions, which I haven't found yet, but, but I'm, I'm told there are recordings of those sessions that they have. Um, there were also um, very much political activism. So the students were, were trained in terms of not only self-defense, but also in this ongoing tumultuous relationship between communities and policing, right? Particularly during the era of Mayor Ed Koch, when, 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 when policing, I mean, if you think now in terms of the, the present 2019 moment, it is, is, um, you know, it's, it's been brutal. New York City in, in the 80s, <laughs> where the war on crime and yeah. drugs was, was, was so visceral and, and so real, but also targeted toward these um, certain communities. Um, the East provided a refuge, a safe zone, you know, but also a preparation zone against these uh, attacks on local communities. So there, there was so much you know, to the, this era where the, the school sort of captures both the, you know, the ebb and flow of, of, of the the latent sort of civil rights black power era, but also this era of ultra-conservatism, um, Reagan, 1980s, Ed Koch, and um, surviving um, mightily up until, um, I think, late 80s, early 90s, the East closed. Um, but what survives is the International African Arts Festival, which is every year in Brooklyn in July. That is a product of the East. And in fact, it started to kind of bring everything full circle as a end-of-year celebration for the students of Uhuru Sasa. Ah, and now it attracts over 100,000 people uh, over, I think, a three, four-day period in Brooklyn every year. We're at question 13. Um, there's been a lot of debate in New York City uh, about how the city's selective high schools go about admitting students, with some criticizing the testing. What do you think of the current system, and did working on a view from the East change how you looked at that subject? No, the research for the East did not change my, my view. Uh, I think readers and, and of the book and listeners of this program um, should know, or at least you know, consider that those um, specialized high schools, which are essentially public private schools, that's right, yeah, because <laughs> you have to test in mm -hmm. um, to get into them. So there's, there's, a, there's a you know a, a sort of a built-in bias because testing is is is, is is a function of filtering who can get in and who cannot, which is a function of resources to prepare for the test. <laughs> um, and so what readers of the book and listeners should uh, know or consider is that those special high schools were created as a vehicle of up mobility for European immigrants and their ch immigrant children, right, from the 1930s at least onward. In other words, um, 
even though both um, African-American migrants from the South in the 30s and 40s, for instance, come to New York City, as well as immigrants, whether they're Irish or, or, or Scottish, coming you know, to the United States looking for the same thing. So you have both European immigrants and African-American migrants come to New York City competing for the same resources. Um, the city and the state and the nation at a, at a whole viewed them differently. Even though both committed crimes survive, stealing, for example, theft, um, the immigrants were viewed as their, their, their criminality was viewed as a product of their environment, rather, whereas African-Americans were viewed that their criminality was a product of who they were. Mm. And there were prominent theories being, being, being offered to explain away black criminality. And so on the one hand, European immigrant children were given um, these social programs. They were given uh, parks, um, you know, uh, rec centers, um, specialized high schools, Right, part of that offering, mm -hmm. say that we know that there are talented students who don't have the means. This is a way of mobility. And so the special high school came out of that, whereas African Americans were not given that because they, they were deemed to be simply innately criminal rather than a part of their conditionally criminal, right? Even though the statistics show that both immigrants and, and, and migrants committed crime at the same rate. However, they were treated vastly different. So African Americans had to rely on themselves. And so if you think about the current, you know, sort of, you know, results in debate, I think there were a handful of students of African descent that were selected for the high school for the most recent round. Then you have to think about the history of it, hmm. right? That these were designed, you know, um, for, for those places. And so when, when white and Asian parents complain about doing away with the testing, what they're complaining about is doing away with a, a, a mechanism that allowed their children to succeed and, and, and become upwardly mobile, Right, when you know the parents on the other side, um, both black and brown parents complain about the test. What they're complaining about again is this inequity that was built into the system from the '30s and '40s onward. Mm -hmm. And so, the history I think helps to sort out what's really at stake here. It's not about testing. It's really about you know making the structure viable. If the premise of the structure, I mean in this case the specialized schools, of mobility then it should be based upon a, a sort of, not a quota, but a system that allows for equitable amount of different kinds of students to be able to get there, right? Because otherwise, what you end up doing is reproducing the same inequity, actually making it worse. Because, you know, I'll leave it at that. And that was 13. Uh, Professor Conadu, thank you so much for chatting today. I want to also thank Colgate student Kate Norton, a member of the class of 2020, for her research assistance. Uh, please send any questions or thoughts you may have about the podcast to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. I would love to put together an episode of submitted questions, so please do reach out. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Thanks again, and keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.